My guest today is Professor Luciano Floridi. Luciano Floridi is a professor of philosophy and ethics of information at the University of Oxford. He is also the director of the Digital Ethics Lab of the Oxford Internet Institute. His research interests include the philosophy of information, information and computer ethics, and the philosophy of technology. In this episode of Bridging the Gaps, we are going to discuss philosophy of information. Professor Luciano Floridi is with me on the phone line. Uh, Professor Floridi, thank you very much for taking my call and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Well, thank you very much for the very kind invitation. I am delighted to be with you. In one of your presentations, uh, you define philosophy of information uh, as a philosophy of our time and a philosophy for our time. Uh, Please unpack this definition for our listeners and explain this description of the philosophy of information. Sure. Um, So the point here is um, partly historical, partly theoretical. Um, The historical point is probably quite simple uh, in terms of development of the history of philosophy. Uh, One way of describing it is um, a little bit like sort of going up and down uh, uh, like a a wave where the ups are when philosophy uh, deals with philosophical problems and then the downs, uh, the valley of uh, that particular wave are uh, represented when philosophers deal with Uh, philosophers' problems. The difference is between Plato and the Platonist, or Kant and the Kantians, um, the Wittgenstein and the Wittgensteinians, Heidegger and the Heideggerians. Uh, I think you got the gist. So in the ups and downs of philosophy, philosophy has been uh, constantly challenged by the world, society, developments, also technological, scientific, cultural, So imagine uh, the emergence of democracy uh, of some kind in Athens or uh, the scientific revolution or the foundational crisis of mathematics and so on. Every time philosophy has had the temptation of talking to itself, about itself, watching itself in the mirror, at some point it has been brought out of the ivory tower and has been asked to deal with philosophical problems, the pressing issues that are always with us and are constantly changing. So they're both universal, if you like, atemporal, but also timely. Now, within this particular picture or against this background, the impression is that uh, there's been a time where uh, philosophy was much more concerned about, shall we say, metaphysics. Uh, it moved, uh, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit here, uh, forgive me for the broad strokes uh, as you were that I'm using, but with Descartes onwards, we um, started looking at philosophy as having a main concern in not so much the nature of the world, metaphysics, if you like, uh, or ontology, depending on the terminology one uh, likes to use, uh, but in the knowledge of things, epistemology. And this was the great season of epistemological theories, etc. cetera. Uh, later, later on, uh, shall we say, with Wittgenstein, uh, we look at uh, the so-called linguistic turn. Uh, so from the nature of things to the nature of knowledge about things 
to the nature of the symbolic forms, to use uh, uh, another uh, philosopher's terminology, Cassirer, uh, uh, that help us to make sense of our knowledge and uh, therefore the world. Now, I would like to argue that uh, in this progression, uh, information has uh, finally reached the point where it has this twofold value. That's why a philosophy of our time for our time. It is at the same time challenging philosophers to come up with new uh, conceptualizations, new ideas, but also uh, asking slightly different questions on the one hand, but it's also so getting philosophy out of the ivory tower, but it's also representing a renewal of the philosophical enterprise. Again, we're talking about philosophical problems, not philosophers' uh, problems. So the twofold nature of a philosophy of our time for our time comes from this general broad uh, historical perspective on how philosophy goes on about uh, its own business. Uh, this approach of philosophy of information uh, seems to deal with the concept of information as it is understood uh, in this uh, modern age, uh, in this modern time, uh, mainly in the context of information and communication technologies. However, information also exists uh, in other forms, uh, biological information, uh, economic information, information in natural processes, how does this approach of philosophy of information deal with these other forms of information? This is a good question and it is important to be clear about this. So information comes in many forms. Uh, it's a little bit like uh, what Aristotle said about being, uh, is said in many ways. We use the concept of information as almost a currency to by conceptually many different things in many different contexts. Now, if I may sort of refer to a little book of mine uh, called Information, a very short introduction. I do cover, of course, this uh, different concepts of information in biology, in economics, what is the value of information. It is important to realize at the same time that variety and the multitude of concepts uh, that qualify information does not mean that there is not a so-called queen uh, or central kernel concept of information, which is the default position if we are not told, oh, look, we're using the concept in a different way. What I'm saying here is that uh, information may mean many different things, but when we do not specify what kind of concept we're using, we go back to the more epistemological idea of information. Information about the world, uh, something like describing what I had for breakfast this morning. So it would be a pity if the philosophy of information were to be understood as just another form of epistemology. Uh, I do not share their view. Uh, that was, for example, much more a uh, view shared by Dresky, uh, with whom uh, we had some wonderful conversations uh, in the past. That is not, however, my perspective. Uh, all concept of information should be included and should be included precisely because society today uh, is using all this variety of concepts to make sense of our world, to interpret who we are and to describe our interactions and even our political and social um, context. So at the same time, yes, many different meanings. Uh, however, no, there is one that is most commonly used and it has something to do with the description uh, of the world. 
how did ancient philosophers uh, deal uh, with the concept of uh, information when they were dealing with forms and uh, logic and reasoning uh, were they not dealing with information uh, do we find any philosophical discourse about information in uh, ancient times I think the answer here has to be a qualified yes um, in the following sense. For someone like me, information is such a crucial concept that it would be astonishing if it hadn't been used by other philosophers uh, throughout the two and a half millennia of, say, Western philosophy. So the next question is like, uh, well, why is not so vividly present, say, in Greek philosophy? And the answer to that is, well, it is and it isn't. Um, in a way, it is used as a tool, uh, but it's not conceptualized as a problem. The analogy here that I have in mind is a bit like Cinderella uh, in uh, in the kitchen. She does most of the work. She is the real princess, as you were, but it's not a knowledge as such uh, and, uh, until the very end of the story. So um, just because you don't see information being a major problem for Plato or Aristotle, it doesn't mean that it's not there. And a quick consideration should bring this point at home uh, quite vividly. Imagine doing anything about ontology without the concept of information. Or imagine doing anything about ethics, say responsibility, without information. Who could be responsible if there's zero information about one's action? Or philosophy of language, where semantics is so crucial and yet one may avoid the concept of information? I don't think so. So what has happened, in my view, is that the concept of information has always been around, has always been used massively and extensively, implicitly, by any anyone doing philosophy, in the same way as all philosophy has always been metaphysical, epistemological, has always been talking about also logic and philosophy of language and philosophy of mind. It's just that in some philosophers, it doesn't get to the conceptual level of becoming a problem. It's more left at the underlying current of a tool to deal with more pressing issues that the philosophy in question finds more interesting. So in other contexts recently, I discussed this in terms of uh, the kind of philosophy behind philosophy or war philosophy, so to speak, to use a German expression uh, to be a bit fancy. Uh, if uh, we want to look at information as a concept of crucial importance, then we need to look at how philosophers have, have been using it to do their job within their war philosophy. In your book, uh, The Philosophy of Information, you make a point that philosophy of information should deal with a number of uh, foundational problems. Uh, let, let us look at uh, some of these foundational problems and let us uh, first uh, look at the most important and most intriguing one. Uh, this is information. Uh, what is information? This is perhaps the hardest and most central problem in philosophy of information. Information is still an elusive concept. So, uh, in, 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 in your view, uh, what is information? Uh, how should we start defining uh, information? It is important to be clear about one's own terminology. That's uh, the ABC of uh, some decent way of doing philosophy, uh, at least in the slightly more analytic tradition to which I, I used to belong. And I'm no longer an analytic philosopher myself. So being clear about terminology is uh, essential. 
in the case of information, it is a classic double move here. One is a Socratic move. Any field of philosophy worth its name starts from the question, the uh, what is X? What is justice? What is knowledge? What is beauty? What is being? What is uh, meaning? In our case, therefore, if we want to have a field called the philosophy of information, the question that we need to ask is the Socratic question, what is information? The next point, it would be silly uh, to interpret this as, as it were, a uh, request for a definition that one could find in the Oxford Dictionary. It's more like a, a finger pointing the direction, say, to someone asking, okay, what kind of problem should I start looking uh, at in terms of foundational today? Well, the finger points in the sort of direction of what is information. So that's step number two. Step number three, there are some clarifications already helpful here, and that's where I probably would like to end my answer. There is a, a clear sense in which, as I said before, uh, information is information about the world. It tells you, or at least tries to tell you, uh, how things are out there, what you had for breakfast, uh, whether there's going to be a financial crisis uh, tomorrow, uh, the name of a particular plant and so on, mm -hmm. where Paris is the capital of France. Then there's um, the, another meaning of uh, information, which is different but related, and is not information about something, but information as something. And this is easy to in, understand once we start looking at patterns out there in the world, the concentric rings of a, a cut off trunk of a tree to tell us the age of the tree, or my uh, fingerprints, or the tracks on a, an old um, long play, uh, and so on. So there are uh, there's information as something understood as patterns uh, in the world. And then there's information for something, which is another meaning. Uh, and that is what we find, for example, in a recipe or in an algorithm that is still information, but clearly is neither true or false, nor is just a pattern there that the world is presenting to us. It's more a recipe for doing something, is instructions to achieve something, and that's why information for. Now, once you have this 3D um, representation of information, imagine you know, the X and the Y and the Z axis represented by information about something, for something, as something, then any piece of information uh, out there can be placed more or less uh, closely to one of the axes in this space, three-dimensional space. And so if you are interested more in terms of uh, what are the physical properties of that piece of information, you're looking at information as something, instruction, maybe it's a piece of music, and it is how tells you how to play it. Or in fact, it's a, it's a document that tells you that that particular author wrote that piece of music in such and such time. So we need to remember that these three sides of the information sort of object, so to speak, are all interrelated. In other uh, forms uh, of philosophy, uh, we find a concept uh, that we call a symbol grounding problem. Uh, you talk about data grounding problem in the context of a philosophy of information. Uh, what is data grounding problem and how does uh, data uh, get uh, its meaning? 
The data grounding problem is really just a simple grounding problem generalized to uh, a variety of um, platforms and media. So uh, normally the simple grounding problem is interpreted in terms of language, which is perfectly fine. Um, and it's just another way of saying, look, we could also talk about how data get their meaning, not the symbols in question, scratches on a surface, uh, if you like, the patterns that we were describing before. So the data or symbol grounding problem really is just a matter of uh, simple terminology, uh, no uh, novelty here, remains a challenge. In my view, uh, it goes hand in hand with a certain view of the human mind as a bit of a glitch in the universe, not something that is superior or better than uh, other aspects of reality, but diverse. Um, original, strange, the oddball or the outlier in the pattern, uh, what I've described in more recent work as a beautiful glitch. If the mind is a beautiful glitch, it doesn't mean that it's supernatural, it doesn't mean that it's divine, uh, although some people are perfectly uh, happy to interpret it that way, and I'm perfectly happy to see them doing so, uh, not my case. But the exceptionalism of the beautiful glitch to me, lies exactly in the ability to generate semantics, to transform, in other words, symbols into something meaningful, data into information. When we talk about uh, meanings, uh, then a relevant problem is, uh, how can we claim that these meanings uh, are uh, truthful? The truthfulness of data or if you like in the old terminology of philosophical language, philosophical logic of symbols, is um, it's a bit more challenging because in the book, The Philosophy of Information, I suggest that we might join forces with many other interesting, valuable theories of truth, um, correspondence, coherence, pragmatic. Another one, which is in terms of correctness, uh, what I've called also in some uh, research papers, the correctness theory of truth. Here, the idea is that truth is, is a way of combining the right answer to the right question. It seems a bit trivial, and of course the details get a little bit more complicated uh, in, the, in the research that I refer to. But this fundamental idea is that if you look back at an expert, an expert is someone who knows because he knows the truth about something. And knows about the truth about something because he's able to answer questions about that something correctly. So correctness becomes a matter of a network of potential answers that satisfy a given question. Of course, here uh, there's much more that needs to be said. Uh, perhaps we will have time in a moment about level abstractions, the purpose why that question has been asked. But let me give you just one single example. Suppose someone asks whether uh, that particular ship that uh, be belonged to the Zeus is the same uh, ship or not, a classic problem in uh, uh, ontology uh, as we know it. Well, to me, the, the one can reach the, a true answer to that particular question only by establishing what the context, what the purpose, and what the level of abstraction are within which that question has been formulated. If, for example, I am the taxpayer, uh, and uh, the question has been asked by the taxman. Trust me, trying to show that that is not my ship because uh, the planks have all been changed, won't work. Uh, however, if I'm a collector 
And uh, you tell me that, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That ship is, no, the, the ship uh, that belongs to the Zeus. It's just that I change everything. I won't give you the same price for that particular item. So it is crucial to have this particular context within which the question is asked. Therefore, the answer is provided so that we can have a, a correspondence, excuse me, a correctness theory of truth uh, in place that does the job. You also emphasize that uh, to understand uh, the meaning uh, of uh, an element of information, a context uh, is very important. And you talk about uh, the concept of level of abstraction. Uh, you have briefly touched upon this few moments ago, uh, but please talk to us about this important concept uh, in more detail. The concept or, or rather method of uh, level of abstraction is, seems to me, absolutely crucial in any decent philosophy. Whoever does it, whatever school, whatever orientation, whatever topic, it consists in the uh, ability to specify what elements will count or not in that particular analysis. I shall be a little bit clear in a moment using the uh, a specific kind of level abstraction, what we call in computer science an interface. But before that, uh, consider, for example, that all the antinomies in Kant are a matter of level abstraction. Depending on the level abstraction at which you are working, some problems are totally impossible to solve or absolutely trivial. Let me give you an example and then uh, back to the interface specific uh, example, issue. Suppose I ask you whether the building at the corner is uh, is the same building that uh, we had, say, five years ago. Well, that question is impossible to answer because I did not specify the level of abstraction at which I'm asking it. What kind of uh, feature am I interested in? I might be interested, for example, in terms of direction. I need to go to that building. Is it the same building? And then the answer will be, yes, of course, it's the same building. Here's how you go. First left, then the traffic light, go, et cetera, et cetera. But suppose that what we call in computer science the observable, in other words, the feature that is of interest, is the functionality of the building. Then the answer will be, no, not at all. It used to be a school five years ago, now it's a hospital. So the next reply uh, from the naive person who doesn't know much about philosophy will say, Oh my goodness, then is not all relativistic. No answer is a good answer. And that's where not knowing about the level of structure, not knowing about computer science and so on, uh, causes some damage. Because one may stop here and say, oh, well, then, then it all depends. No, it does not. Because once you have established what the purpose for the questioning is, for example, I need to get there, or I need to know what's happening inside that building, then you can identify the level of structure oversimplifying here, uh, one is direction, the other one is purpose, and then I can compare the answers. And the answer, in a sense, yes, is absolutely the same because I misunderstood your question, which was about function, as a question about direction, would be wrong and vice versa. So every time we make a statement, what we are doing implicitly is to assume some variables as relevant, so-called observables in computer science, some purpose as being the right purpose, and therefore the combination between purpose and level abstractions 
as the context within which that particular statement or question plus answer makes sense and is the right way of stating whatever we're stating. Now, I said that I would go back to the concept of interface. So here we are. An interface, uh, strictly speaking, is a particular kind of level abstraction in computer science. It allows you to see some features, not others, and uh, it filters, so to speak, your uh, epistemic interaction with whatever other element is on the other side. If you call the element on the other side of the interface or whatever is being analyzed at a particular level of abstraction as, in other words, your object as the system, well, the system, and again, terminology rather common in computer science, is analyzed at a level of abstraction to generate through some variables called observables a model of the system for a particular purpose. Not all models are uh, equally good, and uh, sometimes the purpose needs to change. But unless we have the interplay between all these elements, what we're doing is really conceptually too poor to be called philosophy. Uh, you uh, present and discuss an interesting concept uh, in your publications. Uh, that is uh, the concept of informational structural realism. And you make an important observation that a significant consequence of informational structural realism is that the ultimate nature of reality is informational. Now, this is an intriguing statement. However, before we discuss this statement, please describe for our listeners what is informational structural realism? So, structural realism is a, is a rather common and, uh, I would say, probably popular uh, position in philosophy of science, uh, where a lot of the debate about the ultimate nature or whatever science is uh, analyzing, and we are talking also about different sciences, is structural in its essence. Now, imagine, in other words, that what, say, physics is uh, analyzing uh, patterns, uh, just to be a little bit less uh, abstract. The view that I have put forward is that we don't have to be ontologically committed all the way to a metaphysics of the ultimate nature of reality. So the quote that you, uh, that you had uh, and similar other positions that I have expressed must be read in a context where I uh, remain rather Kantian on the possibility of understanding what the intrinsic nature of the world is. I find it um, almost strange, let's say, uh, remarkably odd that uh, this particular lesson from uh, the Kantian uh, development hasn't been uh, adopted by everybody. Uh, for a philosopher like me, uh, it really makes very little sense to talk about the world in itself, independently, as we said before, of a level of abstraction, of purpose, and so on. Which does not mean, of course, that the world is not there. It just means that whatever is there, the system, is uh, accessed through a modeling that is always constructive. And by constructive, I do not mean some fancy or can do anything with the world, whatever I please. Now, of course, with constraints and um, affordances provided by the data that come from the world. So I'm almost there uh, with my answer. Imagine the world is uh, a radio station. The radio station is uh, sending broadcasting what we would call data. We use the data to make sense of what the uh, 
broadcasting station, the source, is uh, doing, but the data do not describe the radio. The dish does not describe uh, the ingredients. We take the ingredients and we uh, experience the world as we do, as the dish out of those ingredients. The ingredients, the data, provide the constraints and affordances. Now, the structural realism, therefore, in this case, is talking about the ingredients and the data as the structural constraints and affordances that enable us to have a particular vision of the world. Why information on today? Well, because I think that uh, if you translate this uh, in contemporary uh, language, what we're really saying here is that with the level of abstractions, with the informational uh, perspective on the philosophy of information and so on, our structural realism would be precisely of an informational kind without having uh, the necessity of being committed to the ultimate nature of the world. For example, we don't have to commit ourselves to any particular view about whether the world is continuous or discrete, analog or digital. I find that particular debate meaningless, literally, because it's developed within a context where people are trying to answer absolute questions. In other words, questions without a level of abstraction and a purpose. In absolute terms, any absolute questions is just an absolute mess. So when you say that the ultimate nature of reality is informational, uh, are you referring uh, to the fabric of this universe or um, uh, are you suggesting that it is the basis of our consciousness or uh, you are just referring uh, to this interconnected uh, modern society and this modern world? I think the easiest way of understanding this is, uh, would be as if, as a Kantian, I were to say the ultimate nature of reality is noumenal. It's another way of saying, well, the ultimate nature of the world is a single no, monistic perspective out of which, in terms of, say, if you like, more Spinozian terms, we articulate a variety of views, including, for example, the distinction between mind and brain, such that at some point, once we had distinguished them, we find very difficult to reconcile. I find it more uh, intriguing and more interesting to think in terms of uh, all these dichotomies or dualisms of a radio of multi-distinctions, no, more in terms of branches of the same tree. So when I say, look, no, the ultimate nature of the world is informational, it tries to walk the very tight uh, sort of space between Metaphysics, in other words, well, we can actually have an access to the ultimate nature of the world, and it is to be, to be dis discussed, or a purely so phenomenological, um, non-committed view, etc. Is um, as I tried to say before, is a constructionist, uh, very realist view, whereby the world provides the ingredients, we cook them into a dish. The world provides the data, we transform that into information. So by saying that the ultimate nature of the world is informational, I'm saying our knowledge comes from the world, is supported by the world, is constrained by the world, and is made easier by the world, but it is not in any possible way a picture of the world. We're not mirroring anything in the same way as you know, when I build something, I respect the, or I have to, if I want to do a good job, I respect the, the, the constraints and the affordances of whatever material I have, but what I build out of that material is not a picture of the original building blocks. Now, if you take the building blocks as data, as in my case, data in themselves are just distinctions. Uh, 
no differences, uh, a, a dot, a black dot on a white page. Now, what I'm saying here is that we perceive all distinctions and we build all this um, colorful, soundful, uh, extraordinary world, uh, and also all the science that comes from the new level of structure that we are able to uh, adopt. But I would be reluctant to be pushed all the way to a commitment uh, in terms of, and that is the ultimate nature of the world. I find that sort of statement literally meaningless. I don't understand how anyone can possibly reach that conclusion without passing through an interface such that that interface will also tell their someone that that conclusion cannot be reached. Uh, now, let us uh, look at uh, another relevant uh, and uh, important concept. Uh, this is the concept of uh, information ethics. You say in your book, The Ethics of Information, that information ethics has come to mean different things to different researchers working in a variety of disciplines. Uh, so my question is, uh, what is uh, ethics of information? So information ethics or the ethics of information uh, has been uh, something that has been developing for several decades now, um, um, in the probably late 70s, 80s. We used to call or the, the field more often computer ethics. The emphasis was on the machine. Uh, then we moved to information ethics. The emphasis was on uh, the uh, data that were manipulated by the machine. More recently, I've argued that we should really be more inclusive and talk about digital ethics, the ethics of all the digital transformations um, caused by uh, technologies, but also the behaviors and the sciences behind the technologies and the behavior at the end of uh, those technologies. In short, uh, digital ethics or the old so-called information ethics is an attempt on the one hand to develop an applied area of uh, ethics. Think of in terms of another chapter in a handbook where you have bioethics, medical ethics, engineering ethics, and so on. And then you find also the digital ethics chapter. Well, that is exactly one way of understanding information ethics slash uh, digital ethics or the very old fashioned computer ethics. There is another way, uh, in the same way as I've spoken about philosophy of information as either at the same time, so uh, inclusive uh, or um, a general new stage in the development of philosophy, but also my own personal way or your personal way of doing philosophy about this and that. So you and I could be both doing, say, philosophy of information and yet disagree on very fundamental things in the same way as we could both doing philosophy of mind and yet complete disagreement among several things. Likewise, digital ethics or information ethics is a new way of looking at ethics from a different perspective, and yet we can still disagree on the applied or concrete uh, elements that make that particular step uh, an interesting one. And to me, if there's anything that qualifies information ethics as something that adds a new chapter in the history of ethics, is the following. For way too long, uh, we have been concerned about the source of the action, as you can tell the terminology helps here, uh, a bit digital, namely the agent. Most of the ethics that we still discuss, um, study, uh, elaborate, disagree upon, is an ethics of an agent. Why should I do it? Who should I be? Etc. The 
recent development, uh, say past century or so, uh, not even, have been pushing towards also, and I stress this, also an ethics of the patient, the receiver of the action. What voice should I be listening to? And in fact, what are the voices out there? What are the demands, the, the rights that are imposing or demanding particular actions or changing behavior and so on? Think, for example, medical ethics, environmental ethics. These are ethics of the receiver of the action, much less of the source of the action. They put at the center of the discourse, the receiver, the patient. Now, to me, digital ethics does a little bit of that and completes that particular dialectic by looking at neither the agent nor the patient as central, but the relationship between the two. With a metaphor, it's not uh, Romeo, it's not Juliet, it's their love that means something fundamental. It's not the political parties, it's politics. It's not citizens, but citizenship. So once you change perspective and you start looking at an ethics of relations rather than an ethics of the agent or an ethics of the patient, then to me, we're doing the kind of digital ethics or information ethics that I'm keen to develop. And at that point, uh, it becomes a little bit difficult to conclude, oh, but there is consequentialism, deontologism, environmentalism, or contractualism, and so on. Well, you know what? No, it's just digital ethics. It's a way of looking at the network and therefore the relations that constitute the nodes, remember, structural realism as well, as fundamental and where the difference can be made in terms of making sure that actions are a little bit better and bad actions are a little bit less frequent by working on the relations between the nodes. This nicely brings us to my next uh, question. Uh, in your book, The Information Ethics, you discuss morality of artificial agents. Uh, what do you mean by this? Uh, the concept of morality is usually associated with biological and intelligent beings. Uh, so what do you mean by the morality of uh, an artificial agent? This is an important point, and I'm afraid I, I'm guilty of having been perhaps unclear and therefore have been being misunderstood more than once. As I would like to go on record once again, I've done this many times, I think that the, uh, the idea of uh, artificial agents, as in some kind of sci-fi Hollywood uh, uh, scenario, is just very enjoyable on Netflix, but not in any philosophical serious discussion. Uh, I think that any discussion about rights for robots or similar things are better left to speculations that you know, uh, are enjoyable, as I said. But we have you no know, very serious problems to, to discuss. So um, plenty of freedom, of course, for anyone to waste their time, uh, but not me. Uh, so when I talk, and uh, I used to talk in the past about artificial agents and their morality, what I meant was that in more and more complex environments where new forms of agency, and I'm talking about the real stuff out there, know something about you know, uh, Star Wars, um, makes things a little bit more complicated and we should be more open-minded in terms of understanding where, for example, responsibility lies versus accountability. And this is where uh, perhaps I've been slightly misunderstood in the past. To me, accountability has got to do with causality. Uh, and so in the, of the book and the research papers related to the book, uh, I try to make sure that uh, I define the term in terms of 
where the bugs end, to use an American expression. So if, say, uh, a particular piece of software generates a mess online, well, that piece of software would be where the accountability in terms of chain of causal reactions ends. However, there's no responsibility there whatsoever. As you were saying in your question, responsibility, the full moral idea, well, that involves understanding, semantic, therefore, attitudes, uh, maybe not even knowing that something was going to happen, therefore, lack of responsibility because of lack of information and so on. In other words, it requires a full mental uh, life. This full mental life is essential and it's got nothing to do with engineering artifacts. But it is important at the same time not to underestimate the fact that we are dealing with new forms of agency that are, shall we call them smart, or at least they are able to solve problems instead of us, better than us, more often than us, and increasingly we will be dealing with these forms of agency in contexts where morality matters. How we handle, for example, that distributed uh, uh, responsibility among different forms of agency, that is a pressing issue for our century, not something that we encountered often in the past. Well then, uh, here is an intriguing question. Uh, can information be formed uh, as uh, artificial evil? Well, there is a form of artificial evil where you start thinking in terms of, uh, uh, for example, a uh, natural evil like a volcano uh, or an earthquake or not these days, for example, a virus causing havoc, uh, causing something that we would like to say it should not have happened. Uh, it would be a better world if that were not the case. So once again, I'm not trying to play with words, but once you replace the volcano the, 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 or the virus with, say, a piece of software, well, that kind of a natural evil uh, becomes an artificial evil. All that, just that. In other words, one could say, look, uh, this disaster happened, for example, an a car accident happened because a piece of software malfunctioned. That was unfortunate. It is, shall we say, a moral evil. Someone died, should not have. Uh, pain has been inflicted and so on. And the source of that evil was entirely artificial, was a piece of software, or maybe the interaction between that piece of software and other mechanisms within that particular system. Now, this needs to be acknowledged, not in order to de-responsibilize uh, human beings, on the contrary, in order to be sure that responsibility is allocated properly. Because if this can happen, then you don't want to be in that particular corner. And I'm reminded here, if I may, of the pointless discussions, which will not be stopped, because uh, otherwise we wouldn't be discussing about scholasticism in philosophy on the trolley problem. Of course, uh, anyone uh, will be enjoying uh, discussing it, will try to find a solution, forgetting that the trolley problem was meant to be a counterexample, was meant to discuss something else. has become a distraction and, as I said, uh, a source of uh, uh, entertainment when you want to uh, start thinking in terms of uh, uh, technology interactions and human will, etc. Now, against that background, we should not forget that responsibility with capital R is always human. Uh, and sometimes it's impossible to do the right thing, as in the trolley problem. It's a lose-lose situation. We should stop discussing it. Uh, in the case of a software malfunctioning, on the other hand, you should be, and that's the point, make sure that your, the design of the artifact doesn't get you into a position where all you have in your hands is a trolley problem. Because once you get to a trolley problem, you need to stop thinking because there is no solution 
And it's like ask, being asked whether you like the frying pan or the fire. You can just toss the coin. It doesn't matter. Professor Floridi, uh, we have been discussing philosophy of information and uh, ethics of information. Uh, you have been working in these research areas uh, for a long time. Uh, you have written books uh, on these topics. You have published uh, many research papers uh, on these concepts. Uh, a number of concepts uh, that uh, we have discussed so far are from your books that were published about uh, 10 years ago. Uh, I know that you have been working on a number of other fascinating research projects and ideas and concepts uh, for past few years uh, and uh, you have moved on to these new ideas and projects. Uh, I invite you uh, to tell our listeners about these fascinating ideas and intriguing questions that you are tackling these days. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity as well. So this maybe is the right time to explain where the two books that we discussed, basically the philosophy of information, the ethics of information uh, lie. I mean, they are part of a, a, a much bigger project, which is supposed to include uh, at the end four. And I'm thinking I might be forced to add a fifth volume uh, on the foundations of the philosophy of information. So the first one is very much in the old tradition, shall we say, uh, Kantian critique of pure reason, so epistemological. The second one is much more about ethics. The third one, which I published uh, only last year, really, uh, is called The Logical Information. Uh, and I discussed there also in the first part uh, what I mean by philosophy in terms of conceptual design. And the last book, which is the one on which I'm working these days, is called The Politics of Information. Once I've done these four volumes, I think I can retire. <laughs> uh, but above all, I, I hope to have provided uh, whoever's interest and maybe someone in the future with uh, a springboard, uh, a starting point for some real work on a fascinating area. Now, the move, you can tell, is a bit of a Kantian move as well uh, in terms of... Uh, moving from a more theoretical, epistemological, metaphysical perspective into increasingly uh, critical of uh, uh, practical reason and therefore ethics and then uh, philosophy of politics, philosophy of economics. Uh, the last book, The Politics of Information, is definitely a book on much more uh, policy, uh, philosophy of economics, uh, philosophy of social sciences and political philosophy. I just published, literally just uh, a couple of months ago, uh, a short uh, version in Italian called The Green and the Blue. Um, there's much more than I need to do in order to complete the, the volume, but I hope to get there in a matter of a year or two. Uh, and maybe uh, talk to you again. Professor Floridi, you are most welcome uh, to join me again uh, in a future episode of uh, Bridging the Gaps. Uh, now, these concepts that you have been working on recently uh, are, 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 are very timely topics. Uh, these are important questions. Uh, the changes that we see happening around us, uh, uh, technological disruption and social disruption that we are experiencing, uh, perhaps a philosophical approach that how information impacts uh, our social fabric uh, and impacts uh, politics uh, is a good approach to tackle these hugely important uh, uh, and uh, fascinating questions. 
Indeed, and uh, uh, if I may crack a joke, uh, I, I used to be uh, described uh, by you know a couple of colleagues and so on, uh, uh, what I was doing as very fringe, uh, we're talking late 80s, early 90s. Uh, today, I'm described as very cutting edge. Uh, truth is that I'm still on the board. I haven't moved. It's just that what was fringe has become cutting edge. <laughs> Uh, so uh, I got lucky, to be honest. I invested in trying to understand philosophically our uh, information age at a time when people were discouraging me uh, substantially, and uh, I must say firmly uh, from doing so. Uh, luckily, I was stubborn, <laughs> and luckily uh, the world caught up with my enterprise. Today, uh, as it happens, I'm uh, no, the, 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 the lucky guy at the right time in the right place. Uh, but certainly in terms of um, digital revolution, just imagine what has happened now with the pandemics. Um, there has been a, an extraordinary transformation. I keep saying, even to my students, who say, how did you possibly think about the philosophy of information so, so, I know, like 30 years ago? And I said, like, look, guys, if you had been there 30 years ago and you had had your eyes open, it was so visible. It's just that philosophy, remember, uh, likes to go a lot in the valley of scholasticism, talking about itself and other philosophers, and sometimes doesn't dare to go up on the hill and start talking about philosophical issues. That, that's the only merit I might have had. No, the courage to tackle philosophical problems as opposed to philosophers' problems. It paid back. So um, I'm lucky and I'm lucky to be here today with you, but it could have gone really wrong. <laughs> so today, for example, the, the book that I would recommend of all the things that we've spoken today together, uh, perhaps to start looking at uh, a little book which is way more accessible, but I think more uh, intriguing in terms of contemporary issues, which is called The Fourth Revolution, where I discover, sorry, where I describe uh, this uh, idea of uh, our human predicament today as being one of displacement after Copernicus from the center of the world, after Darwin from the center of biology and uh, uh, the animal kingdom, from the mental life after Freud, well, I add in this book, and I deliver that particular idea, uh, after Turing, we've been displaced from the center uh, of the infosphere, not the, the, the world of information. We are joined by stupid but very effective tools that handle information better than us, as I said. Uh, and uh, we are reconsidering our personal identities online, uh, politics, and uh, you know, the way in which social media is shaping it, on and on and on and on. If you think about this, and that's the last comment, uh, I promise, if you think of anything that hasn't been touched ontologically and epistemologically in terms of digital impact, well, let me know, because I cannot think of anything from education to health, from jobs to fight and wars, from social uh, relations and politics to entertainment, health, anything has been transformed by the digital revolution, shouldn't philosophers been doing a better job in understanding what's happening. I think so, because the better we understand the present, the more likely we are to design a future that is something we can be proud of. Professor Floridi, uh, in, in, in your publications, uh, you describe philosophy as a mechanism uh, to design concepts, uh, it, a mechanism to engineer uh, concepts. Uh, talk to us about this. What is philosophy uh, in your view? Thank you. This is a, a question uh, close to any philosophical hearts uh, and uh, mine included. I see philosophy as conceptual design. 
and this needs to be explained, of course, unpacked. Not as engineering, uh, Carnap has been there before, uh, but more literally as design, as we understand the design of artifacts. It's a, a discipline that doesn't deal, of course, with hardware, uh, but with concepts, with ideas, therefore with semantics, but it's able to identify open questions to devise the right or convincing or valuable answers to those questions. Now, both points, again, need to be clarified quite rather quickly. Open questions are the sort of questions that you and I can uh, be completely informed about, completely rational about, and even open-minded in terms of our dialogue, and yet being able to disagree on them. For example, a political question. It doesn't mean that you don't know, and I do, or vice versa, or you are irrational, or I am irrational, or are you know, uh, unwilling to change our minds. But it still means that the constraints are such that they allow for more than one position, rational, informed, uh, well-meant. Likewise, you know, uh, the answer that philosophy provides are design answers. And so when my students ask, oh, but what, in what particular sense, have you ever tried to look at the shape of a chair on Google Images? And that is a very functional object, and yet there are you know, tens of different designs of a chair. It may not even have four legs. It might have just two big shapes or something. It might be like in the shape of a cube of some sort and so on, and it's still a chair. So if there are many, many different ways of designing a chair, and obviously many different ways of answering open questions, of course they are. So the point becomes how good your conceptual design is. And the best conceptual designers we know, they're called Socrates, no, Plato, Aristotle, and on and on and on, all the way to... Uh, the contemporary philosophers we, we study. Those are amazing designers of conceptual architectures and um, artifacts that have helped us to address open questions again and again and again, successfully in a fulfilling way. Now, design, therefore, is what describes our age, uh, more than invention, more than discovery. Uh, is this something about which philosophers haven't done enough work? So more for all of us certainly, to me, is what philosophy is best at, conceptual design. There are researchers uh, out there, um, mainly from the discipline of science, who say that philosophy is dead. Uh, philosophy is no more. Uh, what is your take on this? There are, unfortunately, a lot of uh, superficial uh, statements about philosophy being dead. Um, we can resort to the very old Aristotelian point that even if you are asking what philosophy is, and if you are saying that philosophy is dead, you're already doing a bit of philosophy, but I would not play that particular trick, um, although it is still a, a valid trick to play. The, the point here seems to me more a matter of misunderstanding what philosophy is about. Uh, if you think of philosophy as something that is um, a cumulative enterprise where every bit augments our knowledge as we move on, a little bit like mathematics, of course you have the wrong model in mind. If you think of philosophy as something that never resolves anything, is constantly questioning everything, is constantly providing new answers to old questions, well, yeah, there is and it isn't, because it's not true that we haven't developed more refined, better answers to old questions. 
think, for example, how we understand today the concept of justice, as opposed to what we were thinking you know, just 200 years ago. So there is refinement, there is improvement, but the sort of uh, uh, analogy here that I would like to use with people, uh, the scientists who don't quite get either the foundations of their science or how philosophy is crucial to get them there in the first place, is the following. It will be like someone saying, look, it's like cooking. We haven't made any progress since the time we were hunting mammoth no, uh, with a spear, really. I wouldn't trust that, and I would like them to <laughs> try uh, a steak of mammoth uh, without the fire. So um, at the same time, as we know, cuisine is something that uh, changes, improves, and develops. What is fundamental here, and that's why not all philosophy is good philosophy, is how respectful you are towards the constraints and the affordances provided by logic on the one hand and facts on the other. Now, facts need to be interpreted. They might be even turn out to be the opposite of what they look like. But starting from the idea that the Earth is flat or that 2 plus 2 equals 5 is never good, and there are plenty of philosophers who do that. So some bad names, unfortunately, you know, we have called it upon ourselves. At the same time, any scientist who denies the value of philosophy not only is a bad philosopher, is a poor scientist. Professor Floridi, uh, you emphasize uh, the value of uh, researching and addressing open questions. Uh, what do you mean by this? And uh, how do open questions uh, uh, relate to various disciplines? Uh, how do open questions relate to philosophy and to other disciplines uh, um, such as physical sciences? Thank you. This is an important question about a question. Uh, I think philosophy is the discipline that deals with open questions in the sense that when you do science, you have the expectation that at some point, either through empirical or logical mathematical resources or a combination of the two, you might be able to reach a conclusion such that if disagreements arises, someone is either not informed or is not being reasonable and rational but there's something wrong with the disagreement. Now, philosophy, on the other hand, precisely because it deals with open questions, questions that are open to disagreement in terms of constraints and uh, provided by, but not sufficient to uh, eliminate disagreement, logic and uh, mathematics on the one hand, empirical facts on the other. Well, that is the space where, for example, normative questions arise. Should I or should I not organize a party on Saturday? Well, that is already a philosophical question because you can pile up all the information in the world and all the reasonings in the world. You and I may still disagree at the end of it by saying maybe yes, maybe no. So the objection that says, oh, but then anything, almost anything is a philosophical question. Well, partly true. Uh, that's why we are philosophical beings. Partly, well, that is also true of mathematics. Two plus two is also uh, a mathematical question. It's just that not what you get a degree uh, uh, from a university about when you are a mathematician. So a philosopher uh, is also someone who wonders whether he or she should wear uh, hair longer or shorter. It's an open question. Of course, that's not what philosophy is about. Why? Because the open question that philosophy deals with are the ones that are more significant in terms of a domino effect. Once you have the answer for those questions, a lot of other things follow. What is knowledge, for example? What is beauty? Is there a God? Is it the right thing to do, etc.? morality and so on? Well, the implications, the effects of those questions are enormous. 
But I would also like to uh, generate a bit of confusion, if I may, <laughs> by saying that uh, open questions in philosophy, they're also, in a different sense, I invite whoever is listening here to uh, read the, the first part of the logical information when I describe all this. Uh, they're also close, but in a different sense. They are close under questioning. And scientific questions are not. Here is the analogy uh, with mathematics. Uh, if you sum two natural numbers, all natural numbers are close under additions. You pick up any two natural numbers and you generate another nat uh, natural number. If you multiply no, two natural numbers, well, the set of natural numbers is also close under the operation of multiplication. But if you divide them, aha, no longer. You might divide five by seven and you're out uh, of the natural numbers. So we say the natural numbers are closed under uh, the, the, the multiplication, the addition, but not under subtraction and division. So keep the same kind of concept and trans transfer that to open questions. If you keep asking questions, questions about questions and more questions, are you always within that discipline or at some point you get out of that discipline in the same way as you know, division and subtraction get you out of the set of natural numbers and you enter into something else. You enter into philosophy. Keep asking questions about mathematics, about economics, about physics, about anything you like. And at some point, what we hear is that, oh, but that is a philosophical question. Exactly. You go out of the close set of questions that that discipline represents. You now enter into the set of questions discussed by philosophy. And what happens to philosophical questions? And that's the last point, I promise. If you keep asking them, you stay within philosophy. Philosophy is close under philosophizing in that particular sense. Other disciplines are not. So if you want to know whether we're, you're dealing with philosophy or with something else, ask yourself, is this discipline close under questioning? Because if it is, then there is a philosophical enterprise. If it is not, if at some point, Asking again and again and again, you get out of that discipline, and by then, someone will say, that's no longer chemistry, it's no longer anthropology, it's no longer history, it's philosophy of history, philosophy of chemistry, philosophy of physics. Well, you know that what you were dealing with was just a science. Uh, and I say just because it will be close uh, under that particular sense of questions, but not in terms of questioning yourself. Professor Luciano Floridi, thank you very much for your time. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Oh, I'm the one who, thank you. Uh, fantastic questions and great conversation. So many, many thanks again. And again, once more, thank you for the invitation. Thank you and uh, goodbye. Thank you. Have a, have a good day. Thanks a lot. Bye.